from Las Vegas. You're listening to Verve Church for people who don't like church. Thanks for tuning in. So there are people who believe in Bigfoot. And no offense if you do, but I can't believe in something because of an out-of-focus picture taken by a drunk camper. Uh, There are people who believe that Elvis is still alive, uh, Tupac as well, and that is just wishful thinking. There's no evidence for any... She's so upset by this, she's leaving. She's like, how dare you say that Tupac is not alive? (laughs) There are people uh, who believe, check this one, that the Cleveland Browns will eventually win a Super Bowl Those people are crazy. They're just crazy. Uh, I believe the Bible. All of it. Uh, Why? Why do I believe the Bible? Why should you? Uh, Maybe you say, I do believe the Bible, but if a friend asked you why, or your kid said, why do we believe the, the Bible? You don't have any answer for that. You just do. Last week, we started a new series on the Bible, and I am psyched uh, because I want you to know that you can trust the Bible. I want you to get the most out of your Bible. I want you to to, uh, experience how the Bible can change your life. It has changed mine. I became a Christian from a completely non-Christian background 30 years ago uh, by trying to disprove the Bible, and I have read it just about every single day since I've memorized hundreds of verses in it, and there is no habit that has changed my life as much as reading the Bible, and I want you to have that. So uh, last week we saw how if we don't just read the Bible, if we actually live by it, we apply what it says, it sets us free. Uh, The next two weeks, don't miss it. I've literally never heard any church do what we're going to do the next two weeks. Uh, But we're going to look at some of the craziest and most disturbing things in the Bible and learn some important principles to help us understand those hard-to-understand passages. Uh, And then the last week of the series, we're going to learn how to read it to get the most out of it. But today, we're going to ask, why do we even believe what the Bible says? Uh, We're going to look at some of the questions and objections that people raise about the Bible and see if there are good answers, okay? Sound good? I'm going to pretend that's a yes. All right, so so one question people ask when they they ask questions about the Bible is, since we no longer have, like, the original manuscripts of the Bible— Couldn't it be true that what we have today is filled with errors or with legends that grew over time? You know, kind of like the telephone game. Did you ever play that when you were a kid? You you whisper a specific message in somebody's ear. They whisper it the next year, the next year, the next year. And by the end, it no longer is barely like what it was in the beginning. It just changed and changed. Maybe that's the, the Bible. And, and it is true that we no longer have the original handwritten manuscripts and that back then there were no printing presses or Xerox machines. And so people, if something was important and they wanted to distribute it, people would sit down and they would copy by hand. And so those are ancient manuscripts that you can have that they're copied uh, from the originals, which is what happened with all ancient texts. And the way scholars today determine if whether what we have now is the same as what was written back then, if we have an accurate transmission of the information, 
information is how many ancient manuscripts we have and how early they were written. Uh, the more we have, the more we can compare them all and see, do they all say the same thing or is there all kinds of changes and all kinds of differences and so we can't really trust which one is right from what was originally written. So for instance, to give you some examples, uh, Julius Caesar's writings called the Gaelic Wars. Uh, we have today 10 ancient manuscripts. The earliest one is from a thousand years after when Caesar died and the manuscript was originally written. That is considered good, accurate history. Ten copies, that's a lot, and so you, you probably don't remember, maybe you do, but you learned about the Gaelic Wars in school, in high school or college, from that book, and your teacher didn't go, hey, we don't know if we should believe this or not, there's only ten. And your teacher was completely confident because there's ten. Uh, Pliny the Younger's writings called Natural History. We have seven manuscripts, the earliest from 750 years after he died. Uh, Heroditus's History, we have eight manuscripts, the earliest from 1,350 years after he died, and still, again, considered good, accurate history taught in schools today. Uh, Twilight, over 100 million copies sold. Irrelevant, but tragic. <laughs> so... How about the New Testament of the Bible? Well, uh, Bruce Metzger is considered a, a scholar on this stuff. He is a professor from Princeton University, pretty, pretty good school. Uh, in fact, his portrait is on the wall at Princeton University. He's a very respected scholar. He tells us that we have 5,665 ancient Greek manuscripts going all the way back to within decades of Jesus' life. Add to that, he tells us, another eight to 10,000 Latin Vulgate manuscripts and another eight to 10,000 Ethiopian, Slavic, and Arminian. And so together, there are over 24,000 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament in existence today. So you take that number of ancient manuscripts and then you add to it how early they were written. Uh, like the Gospels, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospels are the, the four books of the Bible that walk you through Jesus' life here on earth, his death, his resurrection. Um, they were written at the very most 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death. Uh, Paul's letters, which make up most of the rest of the New Testament, were written just 15 to 25 years after Jesus' death which means the biblical accounts were circulating within the lives of people who would have been at the events being written about. Does that make sense? So they're being sent around, and people are like, oh, I was there for that. And so there's a Harvard law professor named John Montgomery. He says this. He says, it passes the bounds of credibility that the early Christians could have manufactured such a tale and then preached it among those who might easily have refuted it. Does that make sense? People could have been like, that didn't happen. I lived there when he's talking about. And all this is to say that there is no document in antiquity in the same category or that even comes close to the Bible when it comes to manuscript evidence and support. And if you've ever wondered... And is it maybe filled with errors? Is it maybe legends that grew up over time? You really don't have to worry about that because it could not have been. It can't be. A second objection people have is um, even if what we have today, so we know that what we have today is what was originally written. We know that. But still, how do we know that what was originally written wasn't just made up? You know, maybe it's like we have it today, but it was made up from the beginning. 
So again, let's take a look at the Gospels. Uh, They are the books that are by far the most frequently attacked in the Bible because they're the books that tell us about Jesus. And so the argument has been made. um, Maybe the original writers of the Gospels just made up stories about Jesus or greatly exaggerated stories about Jesus for whatever reason. Maybe they were just looking for power. I I don't know. But but honestly, um, when you look at it, that argument just falls apart. Um, for a lot of reasons. One, the content of the Bible, and in particular the Gospels, is far too counterproductive uh, for it to be made up. I'll give you a few examples. Uh, For instance, why would they have made up the crucifixion? Uh, Crucifixion was reserved for the worst criminals. Anyone listening to their message in either the Roman, Greek, or Jewish cultures of that time would have automatically suspected or concluded that anyone who was crucified was a terrible criminal, regardless of what the person who's talking to you is trying to convince you otherwise. And so if you're making up a story, you don't have your leader get crucified. That's stupid. And uh, why would they make up the scene where Jesus, the night before he's crucified, is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he asks God if he can please get out of his mission? It, it just it makes Jesus seem weak. Like you, you, you wouldn't put that in there. Or why make up the part when on the cross, Jesus cries out that his Father, God, has abandoned him? I mean, all of those things would have deeply offended or confused potential first century converts, and they would have concluded that Jesus was weak and that Jesus failed his God. And if you're making up the story, why do you have the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection be women in a society uh, where women were assigned such low status that they were not allowed to give testimony in court? Literally, they were not allowed to speak in court because they're just women, uh, but In the Bible, we have women as the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection, even though back then people would not listen to the testimony of a a woman. The only plausible reason all those incidents are included in the Bible is because they actually happened. Also, uh, if you're just making up stories, why do you constantly depict the apostles, uh, these guys who would become the leaders of the movement as petty, jealous, dumb, bumbling idiots, and in the end, as total cowards. And like, like Peter becomes the leader of the early church, and so why make up a story where Peter, at Jesus' greatest moment of need, denies Jesus, and then crawls down curses on Jesus. It hurts the credibility of your movement to include that. The only reason it's in there is because it actually happened, and I'm still surprised it's in there. Like, if I was with them back then, I'd be like, hey, we don't have to put in everything, right? Like, maybe let's just not include that story because it makes Peter look bad, and Peter's like the leader of this thing. But no, it's in there. And no one would have made that up. The content of the Bible is far too counterproductive for the Bible to be made up. Another problem uh, with this idea that maybe they just made up the story is how much of the Bible has been confirmed by external sources. 
Uh, the Bible writers took their uh, responsibility of writing accurate history very seriously. And because they were so detailed in their writing, we can now confirm lots of uh, what they wrote about from outside the Bible, which gives us more reason to be confident in what they wrote. Uh, I'll give you an example. So um, Luke is one of the gospel writers, and um, as he describes the start of John the Baptist's ministry, um, which happened right around the same time as the start of Jesus' ministry, um, look what he writes in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Tranconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Cephas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness." And how concerned is Luke with historical detail? He is very concerned, right? Why? Because he wants people to know that this is not a uh, once upon a time there lived a man named Jesus. This is not one of those stories, right? But like if you read about Hercules or Zeus, you don't get historical detail on exactly when and what, you know, this happened and where it happened. Why? Because those stories didn't really happen, and so you can't provide historical detail. And if you did decide, I'm just going to make up some details about the history of when and where Hercules happened, well, people could look at it outside sources, and, and they could prove that it didn't really happen. So, for instance, um, in Luke chapter 3, Luke gives all this historical detail, and it has uh, allowed people who are skeptical of the Bible to look into it and say, wait a second, he gave us a whole wealth of stuff. We can see if he's wrong. And for a long time, uh, critics of the Bible believed that they had found a problem in Luke's writing. Uh, Luke mentioned in that, those verses Lysanias, who he says was the tetrarch of Abilene. But history uh, told us that it was 50 years earlier that a guy named Lysanias was a tetrarch, but of a different place called Chalcis. And so biblical uh, critics said, see, boom, bam, done. Luke cannot be trusted. Wrong time, wrong city. He was wrong. Until archaeologists found an inscription uh, that was written during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. We know, by the way, the reign of Tiberius Caesar was from 14 to 37 AD. So when he starts out by saying in the whatever year, we know exactly what year he's talking about. Um, and this inscription refers to, I think there might be a picture of it, but maybe there's not, uh, Lysanias, the Tetrarch of Abilene. And it now turns out we know that there were two men way back then named Abilene, one who uh, was a tetrarch 50 years earlier, and then this one who, as Luke wrote, was the tetrarch of Abilene when John the Baptist began his ministry, and now everyone agrees, yeah, Luke was right, history, all the historians were wrong. Uh, what Luke wrote was confirmed by an external source, and uh, and Luke also wrote a book of Acts, called Acts. Acts is the history book of the early Christians and the early churches. And um, there's all kinds of historical detail in there that he gives, which people can either prove or disprove. So, for instance, in the book of Acts, chapter 18, we're told that, uh, that uh, Paul was taken before the proconsul of Achaia, and this guy named Gallio. 
And an inscription was discovered in 1905 that said the proconsul of Achaia at the time was a man named Gallio. It's like, oh, that was right. Um, in Acts chapter 19, verse 22, this has been a really hotly debated one for, for decades. Uh, Luke identifies a man named Erastus as one of Paul's helpers. And uh, Paul was one of the early leaders of the, of the Christian movement. Uh, Luke wrote that this guy Erastus was the city treasurer of Corinth, which is a big major city. Well, skeptical scholars for, for decades uh, said, wait a second. We believe that all of the early Christians were from lower classes of society, and there is no way that a city treasurer of a prominent city was one of uh, the early followers of Jesus or one of Paul's helpers, and that has got to be wrong. Maybe there was a guy named Erastus, but when Luke wrote that, he just made up that he was the city treasurer because there's just no way. And they gave that as evidence that Luke is lying here to try to give credibility to the early Christian movement. Until 1929, when archaeologists were excavating first century Corinth, and uh, you're looking at a picture of a stone that they found when they were excavating. So let's all read this out loud. Okay, ready? Go ahead. Erastus. You guys can't read Latin? Really? Oh, I can't believe this. Well, here's what that says. I'm just kidding. Um, here's what that says. That says, Erastivus pro aid sp stravit, um, something like that. Uh, and that third word uh, is, uh, expect, they think that it was pronounced edel, and it was the title of someone who, back then who was in charge of the financial affairs of a city. And so what that whole thing says, if we could translate it, uh, it says, Erastus, in return for his edelship, so his, his running the financial affairs of the city, laid this pavement at his own expense. That's what that says. In other words, in 1929, uh, this stone that Erastus had laid 1900 years earlier was still where he left it way back then, and it was uncovered, and it was revealed that he had exactly the job that Luke said he had, which all the critics had argued was impossible. And did you know uh, that there are at least 39 uh, ancient documents telling about Jesus from outside the Bible and confirming uh, about a hundred different facts from his life, including uh, his miracles, including his death, including his resurrection. Uh, that means if you got rid of all the Bibles, you'd be like, we can get rid of Jesus. We got rid of all the Bibles, right? There'd be nothing about him in history. No, there's 39 other authors from the time of Jesus who are writing about Jesus too. They're not in the Bible. They're just historians. They were the reporters of the day. And they write about 100 different facts that confirm what the Bible says, miracles, death, resurrection, which is really important, right? But because you should ask, if somebody comes along and does the kind of things that the Bible claims Jesus did, certainly other people are going to write about it, right? It's not just going to be these couple, four guys writing the Bible. Everyone would be talking about a guy who can raise the dead and feed 5,000 people with a fish, right? Like everyone's going to write about it. They did. They did. And all of that helps us to understand even more that this is not just something the Bible writers made up. A third reservation. 
um, that people have is they, they say, wait a second, though. But isn't the Bible filled with contradictions? That's what I've heard. Have you heard that? The Bible is just like filled with contradictions, so why believe it? No. There are differences in different people's accounts of what happened, but there are not contradictions. Um, A contradiction is when two different people tell you about the same thing, and there are differences in their stories, uh, and both could not possibly be true. A difference is when two different people tell you about the same thing and there are differences in their stories, both of which possibly could be true. So, for instance, in, uh, this is one of the big contradictions in the Bible. We do a class called Discover, and I talk about what's maybe the biggest contra- supposed contradiction. I think um, it's pretty easily debunked, and you realize it's not a contradiction at all. Um, do you want to know what? So I write out like what I'm sharing with you, and what I'm going to share with you today is 10 pages. It's actually, I wrote 32 pages. If you want, if you're like, I want more evidence than you gave today, email me, vincentvivaliver.org. I'll send you the 32-page version of the 10-page that you're hearing today. Does that make sense? If you want it, let me know. So, because I got a lot. Um, Matthew chapter 8 is one of the other big contradictions in the Bible that people go, there's so many contradictions, you can't believe this thing. So here's what happens. Uh, There is a centurion. A centurion was an important Roman uh, military official. And in Matthew chapter 8, Matthew says that the centurion asks Jesus to heal his servant. Luke tells the same exact story about the same exact incident in Luke chapter 7. But in Luke's version, the centurion sends some of his representatives, and they're the ones who make the request to Jesus that he would heal the centurion's servant. And so this is one of the big couple contradictions in the Bible. People are like, uh! There it is. There's a contradiction. Matthew says the centurion asked. Uh, Luke says that his representatives asked. Contradiction. Come on. That, that's not really fair. It's no offense to anyone who thinks it. It's just not even intelligent to say that. So um, here's an example. In our world today, there are different ways that people will summarize the same story in different ways. Here's an example. Let's say you're watching the news And the reporter says, the president announced today that we will be ceasing diplomatic relations with blah, blah, blah. Okay, the president announced today that we will be ceasing diplomatic relations with blah, blah. Let's say that you look into it and you find out that it actually wasn't the president who wrote that announcement, it was his speechwriter. And let's say that you find out that it wasn't the, sp- the president who spoke the words, it was his press secretary. Well, that happens all the time. And when it happens, the news anchor will say, the president announced today that we will be ceasing diplomatic relations. And no one would go, wait a second, it wasn't the president who said it, it was his press secretary. And he wasn't even the one who wrote the words, it was the speaker. No, we would go, that's just how you say it, right? We all know that that's the way we talk today. And so uh, it would be the way they talked back then. It could very possibly have been the way they talked back then to say the centurion asked or say his representatives asked, same thing. Here's what's really interesting. 
There are a lot of skeptics who argue that the Bible stories are just made up. These stories are just made up. And who also argue that the Bible writers contradict each other. Ha! That's crazy, right? Think about it. For somebody to say both of those things. If, if the Gospels were not the product of people trying to accurately report what really happened, but instead were just people getting together and going, hey, let's make up some stories and try to convince the world that this stuff really happened, don't you think they would have been smart enough to not have differences in their stories? Right? Certainly. They would have made sure that all the, the, the stories, all the details were identical so everyone will believe that this really happened. But that's not what we find in the Gospels. Instead, uh, here's another contradiction. We find a supposed contradiction. We find one of the Gospel writers mentioning only one angel at the tomb after Jesus' resurrection. He says, he talks about this uh, one angel who spoke to Mary Another of the gospel writers says that there were two angels at the tomb. Well, that is not what happens when people get together and concoct a story, right? That they don't come away and one of them goes, one angel. One of them says, two angels. But that is exactly what happens when real people tell you about something that really happened, right? When two different people tell you about their experience. For instance, um, let's say my wife and I go to a concert, and you ask her, how was the concert? She says, oh, it was so good. The singer was awesome. Uh, you ask me, and I say, oh, the concert was great. Man, the band has two singers. Is that a contradiction? No, that's not a contradiction. If the first person said, only one person sang, and the other person said, there's two singers, contradiction. But if one person says, the singer was awesome, and the other person says, oh man, the band has two singers, that's not a contradiction, right? Maybe the first person, my wife, said, the singer was awesome because that's the only one she cared about, and she thought the other one kind of sucked, right? And so she only mentions one of them. Or uh, let's say that on the way, you say, well, what happened on the way home from the concert? And my wife says, oh man, our car broke down and we were walking along the highway and this guy from a gang threatened us. You ask me what happened, I say, we were driving home from the concert, our car broke down, we were walking along on the highway and four guys from a gang came up and threatened us, but it was cool because I got ninja skills and I scared them and then they all started doing this and it was like, weird, is this, a, is this Broadway? What's happening? It was really weird. Did, did we contradict each other? Because, you know, she said this guy from a gang threatened us. I said four guys came up from a gang and, and, and threatened us. Is that a contradiction? No, right? She, she, just, she didn't mention the other three because they weren't the ones who threatened us. The, the, the main one was. That's what happens all the time when two people talk about the same thing. It's not what happens when two people make up a story and try to convince everyone that it's true. In fact... Uh, there's a guy, his name is uh, Dr. Simon Greenleaf. Uh, he was the professor of evidence at Harvard Law School, pretty good law school. Uh, he decided to try and disprove the Bible. And one of his main attacks on the Bible was um, he, is a, he is an expert at eyewitness testimony. And so he thought, we've got four different eyewitness testimonies in the Bible, right, in the Gospels. And so I'm going to, to 
dismantle the Bible through examining them. And he became a Christian because he came to the conclusion that the Bible was true. And part of the reason he was so confident it was true is because there were differences in the stories of those four different people. This expert on eyewitness testimony said if this was a made-up or exaggerated story, everyone's versions would be exactly the same. That's what happens when, when there's collusion among witnesses and they say, let's all tell a story and make sure we, you know, we get people to believe it. He says, but when real people tell real stories of the same thing, then you're going to get differences if they're telling the truth. And the gospel accounts uh, have exactly the, the kind of attention to detail and uh, the different perspectives from different eyewitnesses that, uh, who all are seeing the same thing that just smacks of historicity. Um, another question people sometimes ask that we won't talk about today is, okay, but what about science? Hasn't science disproven the Bible? And the reason we're not going to talk about that today is because we just did. Uh, on April 30th, we did an entire teaching on it. And if you're interested in that, you can go back to our website or our app and you can watch or listen to that. And so that was some of the stuff I had to cut. Man, I love uh, this series. And the reason is because I want you to read the Bible. I want you to love the Bible because God gave us the Bible. Because uh, it's a gift from him. And, and it's amazing. It, it is like no other book. In fact, listen to what uh, the Bible says about itself in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And it's saying this book is powerful. I mean, you, you think you're going to read it? And then you realize that it's reading you. You think you're, you're going to weigh its words. And then you realize that it's your life that's being weighed. There, there's no other book like it. And, and yes, there are some parts of it that are confusing. And, and some parts of it that just seem weird. Do you know why? Because some parts of it were written 4,000 years ago. In 4,000 years in the future, people are going to look at our culture today and our lives, and they're going to be confused and think, part, and we don't even know which parts, I don't know, but they're going to go, that can't be real. Or they're going to be like, that's horrible, right? And it's going to be like, we just thought it was normal, right? Some of it may seem strange, but that doesn't mean it's not right, and it doesn't mean that it can't be trusted. And that's what we're going to talk about the next weeks. Like I said, I've never talked about this. I've never heard any pastor talk about this. But we're going to talk about the, the most potentially confusing and offensive parts of it. Like, is there a genocide in it? And did God command the genocide? I've heard that. Is that true? Um, do, does it support slavery? I've heard that. Um, is it opposed to tattoos and eating shrimp? Um, is there really, like, punishments for people who wear a piece of clothes that's woven from two fabrics combined, because I, I think this might be, like, what about that? We're going to look at all of it the next two weeks. Um, and what we're going to learn together is that the Bible can be trusted. And we're going to learn uh, in this series how to read it, and we're going to learn how, why, why we should build our lives on it. I mean, the, the truth is, you're going to build your life on something. 
right? We're all building our lives on something. You know, there, there is wisdom that is the source of our decision-making and how we view the world, right? And so the question is, uh, what should you build your life on? What wisdom should, should you use for your worldview and your decision-making? Um, should it be the, the perceptions and conclusions of your very biased, very limited three-pound brain? Should that be the source, the foundation? Um, or should it be the, uh, the advice of a culture that has decided to basically worship Lady Gaga in a meat dress and Miley Cyrus humping a teddy bear? Like maybe that's what we should go with. Or should it be on the Bible, I got, I got humping a teddy bear into a sermon. Yeah, that was, I've been looking forward to that all week. No one reacted. I thought there would be some shock looks, a few laughs. There was just nothing. All right. Um, or should we build our lives on the foundation of a book that, there's so much evidence for it, and it has been changing people's lives for thousands of years. And I will tell you, it has changed my life. After di- trying to disprove it, and I wanted to, I realized that I could trust it, and I have been reading it uh, just about every single day and trying to apply it to my life, and it has changed my life. It has connected me to a God who uh, has given my life meaning and purpose and hope and joy and love and it will do the same for you if you read it and live by what it says as you seek to, to get to know the God who gave you it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, and then our band's going to come back up. They're going to lead us in, I think, two more songs. Um, during these songs, we also have communion available. So communion is a piece of bread, a cup of juice that represents Jesus' body and blood given for us on the cross. It's on the tables in the back of the room. And so if you'd like to make uh, communion part of your worship experience today, you're welcome during these songs. You can get up, um, get communion, bring it back to your seat. You'll see there's two little tabs you have to pull up, and you can take communion whenever you're ready. You've prayed. Um, if you're like, I, I don't, that's not me yet, or I, I'm not sure about that, man, absolutely no pressure to do that. You can just enjoy the, the music and the words we'll put on the screen, okay? Um, So let me pray. What a God you are. Um, To to be a God who who has so much love to give that you created a world full of people to give it to. To to be a God who, when those people rebelled against you, uh, your response was to send your son so that you could offer everyone forgiveness. To be a God who um, understands that it is not easy to to live and make uh, good decisions and not mess up our lives in major ways. And so you gave us a book full of wisdom to live our lives based on. A a book that's a love letter from you to let us know that we are loved and that we are valuable. That, That shows us what our future is. And uh, to, to let this book be based on history so that there's so much evidence so we don't have to have a blind faith but can read it um, with our minds and intellectually come to believe that it's true. What a God you are. God, in these songs, we, we praise you. We ask you, God, would you give us faith? Would you help us to say yes to everything written in your book, everything you ask us? 
We love you, God. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.